I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read from the sixth chapter of Matthew, beginning with verse 7. And in praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. For seven weeks now, we have been focusing on the names of God, and uh, I view that series as an extended prelude for this morning's message and for this week of focus on missions. I'm convinced that a great missionary movement in our church and in the conference and around the world will begin not first with a renewed focus on the world, but with a new vision of the majesty and sovereignty of God. And I had that greatly confirmed firsthand by Faith and David Yeager on Wednesday night. For those of you who were here to get in on our long-distance phone call to Liberia, which we piped in over the uh, speaker system here, it was a great time, but the one thing that just rings in my ears yet this morning is when David had a chance to take a, a minute or two to challenge us, he said, whatever preparations the young people make for missions on the frontiers, please let them know that the most important thing is confidence in the power and sovereignty of God to do the work because it's hard. And then he quoted John 6:37 and John 6:44 which says, "All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him." That's what's sustaining David and Faith Yeager in Liberia among the hidden Golan people today. Nobody comes unless the Father draws. And so if there's going to be a new missionary movement today, I think it's going to be sustained by a grand vision of a sovereign God and of his purpose to gather in a redeemed people from all the peoples and tribes and nations and tongues of the world. So the text for this morning may be surprising, it is very familiar, namely, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I want to ask three questions about this text. One is, what is the name of God that we are to hallow? And I've already answered that as best I can for the past seven weeks, but I'm going to review that. Second question, what does this word hallow mean? When we pray for God to hallow his name, what are we asking him to do? And third, for whom are we praying when we pray this prayer? So let's focus first on the name of God by way of summary over the past seven weeks. I like to think about the biblical revelation of the character of God as an iceberg. 
And only the tip of this iceberg is above the uh, surface of revelation. And it's floating in a sea of mystery. But the tip of the iceberg is so high that it extends out of sight into the clouds. And no matter how much we explore this gigantic tip that's sticking above the surface of mystery and revelation, we will never exhaust it. I don't want to create the impression by bringing this series to a close this morning that we've wrapped up the character of God now onto something else. We haven't. There's enough in God's holy character to exhaust a pastor's labors for 10,000 years, I think, if he had them to preach. And I think will keep us busy for all eternity exploring the crags and canyons of God's character. Let me review for you the little bit of the iceberg we've seen above the water. First, I am who I am, says the Lord. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. So the most fundamental thing that you can say about God is that He is. And the most staggering thing that you can say about God is that He always was and never had a beginning. It just blows my mind every time I think about God never, never, never coming into existence, but always being who He is. Second, I will proclaim before you my name, says the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Right at the heart of God's name and His character is His sovereign freedom. Freedom from being controlled or determined by influences outside Himself that do not flow from Himself. So He is and He is free. Third, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, says the Lord, as God Almighty. So not only does he exist, not only is he sovereignly free, but he is omnipotent. That is, nothing can thwart the purposes of God when he undertakes to decree a thing and do it. His omnipotence is the guarantee of his faithfulness. Fourth, on a second trip down to Mount Sinai to meet Moses, he says, this is my name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving transgression, iniquity and sin. So not only is he in existence from all eternity, not only is he sovereignly free, Not only is he omnipotent, but his existence, his freedom, and his almightiness flow in the channels of mercy for those who repent and return to him. Fifth, Revelation 21. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Every human being has his beginning in God and will have his end in God. God is every person's omega. And we will meet Him. You will meet Him. Everybody out there will meet God in the end, either as a fountain of life or a lake of fire, depending on whether we have bowed the knee to Him in this age. Sixth, 
To Isaiah, the Lord says, I am high and lofty, one whose name is holy. So the Lord is holy. He is separate. He is cut off and above all that is common and mundane. Coins, stamps, anything you can collect, diamonds, are valuable in direct proportion to how rare they are. And if they are one of a kind, you really separate them off. You take very good care of them. You put them in a safe place. And God is one of a kind and infinitely valuable. And therefore, He is high, lifted up, unreachable, away from the contaminations of His creation. And the mystery of the Gospel is He comes to dwell with those saints who are crushed and humble in spirit. Seventh and finally, God declares on Mount Sinai, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God created you and me to love Him with an undivided devotion. And His heart burns with a powerful indignation when our hearts start to divide and we go after other things and fall in love with the creation and play the harlot against God. He is a jealous God. So we have seen a little bit of the iceberg. Not much, but enough to change a life if we have ears to hear and eyes to see. He is. He is free. He is omnipotent. He is merciful. He is the beginning and the end. Every person will meet Him in the end. He is holy and He is jealous for all your affection and doesn't want divided or lukewarm hearts. That's His name. And now Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, teaches us that our first priority in praying should be to ask God to hallow this name. For 20 Three years of my life, I thought that was an acclamation and not a petition. I always said the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, in the sense of hallowed be your name, like praise the Lord. That's not right. It is a third person singular imperative asking God to do something. Namely, See to it, O God, that your name be hallowed. Do what you have to do in the world to get your name hallowed. It is a request, not a declaration. It's like another request. Matthew 9.38 is a great missionary text. And I had never seen it before uh, yesterday in relation to the Lord's Prayer. But now I see a very close and... uh, Amazing connection. That text is a text that uh, says to us farmhands who work on God's farm and are responsible for gathering his harvest, it says to them, ask the Lord of the harvest, that is the farm owner, that he would hire more hands and send them into the harvest. And it always just blows my mind that Jesus should tell me to tell God who knows the harvest Hire more hands so we can get this job done. That just always blows my mind that I should 
tell God to, to uh, do that. But even though it's strange, it's just like what we have in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Because if God is jealous for the honor of His name infinitely, isn't it remarkable that Jesus should come to us and say, now, the first thing you should ask God to do is that He should take care of His name. Well, whether it's amazing and whether it's strange that the first agenda in our prayer life should be to tell the jealous God to undertake the hallowing of His name, so be it. Let us submit ourselves to the teaching of the Lord Jesus and pray the way He taught us to pray. And in order to do that, we need to know what He meant. So let's go to, to question number two. We've talked about what His name is. Now we ask, what does it mean to hallow this name? That's not a common word except on Halloween. What does hallow mean anyway? Now, let me give you the word and then we'll look at a broader context to try to find out. Hallow is the word sanctify. It could have been translated sanctified be your name. And sanctify has two meanings. It either means make holy or treat as holy. So when God sanctifies you, it means that He's in the process of making you holy. And when you sanctify God, you are treating Him as holy, assuming an appropriate attitude and doing the sorts of things that show that God is holy. So that's my question now. What sorts of things ought you to think and feel and do that show God to be holy? How do you treat Him as holy? How do you hallow him. So here's what I did. I got on my concordance, like any of you could do, and uh, looked up these different words. Hallow, sanctify, treat as holy, all of which have the same Hebrew word behind them, and tracked down the few places in the Old Testament where God is the object of sanctification. He's being sanctified or hallowed. And I found four that really unpack for us what it would mean for us to hallow God. Let me just point them out briefly. Number one, Numbers verse, uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 12. You remember the time in the wilderness when they didn't have any water and the people got very angry at Moses, said, we'd rather be back there in Egypt where there's water at least. And uh, Moses pleads with God for this rebellious people and God says to Moses, you just speak to that rock. They have all the water they need. And Moses, however, instead of resting his soul peacefully, contentedly, in the ability of God to respond to a mere word, is so full of bitterness against the people, he hits it twice with his rod. And God gives the water, and then he gives some words to Moses. Because you did not believe me, believe in me, to sanctify me or hallow me, in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now notice the connection between the two words. You did not believe in me to hallow me. And so my first answer to the question, what does it mean to hallow God, is believe him. If you don't believe God, John says you make him a liar. And there is no worse way to profane a person than to say, you're a liar. But if you don't believe God, you make him a liar, John says. Therefore, believing God is number one way to hallow the name of God. 
So, hallowed be thy name means believed be thy word. Trusted. Let it be trusted, O God. Do what you need to do to bring people to trust your name. Second, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. A word to the prophet from God warning him. Listen to what God says. Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But hold the, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Same word. Him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. So how do you hallow God according to Isaiah 8:12? You fear him. You consider him your dread. Very practically, what that means is this. When God calls you to take your stand for him in a hostile situation, you hallow him by fearing saying no to him more than you fear the hostility of the people. You don't fear house Losing or wife losing or losing your children or losing your bank account or losing prestige. That's no way to hallow God. You hallow God by fearing His displeasure at your disobedience more than you fear the consequences from man of being faithful to God. You exalt God as hallowed and holy and valuable when you say, oh God, there's nothing in the world I want to avoid like your displeasure. So, hallowed be thy name means feared be your displeasure. Third, Leviticus chapter 22, verse 31 and 32. Leviticus 22. Here's what the Lord says. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name. But I will be hallowed among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctify you. So it seems to me that in this text, the two things that are brought together are, you shall keep my commandments, I will be hallowed in the people of Israel. And so my third answer to the question, what does it mean to hallow the name of God, is obey his commandments. And so, hallowed be thy name means obeyed be your commandments. Fourth, finally, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. I will show myself holy among you. That is, I will hallow myself among those who are near me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So if you bring those two together, I will hallow myself and I will be glorified. I think it's fair to say that the fourth meaning of the term hallowed be thy name is glorified be thy name. Let's sum it up now. Hallowed be thy name is not a declaration or an acclamation. It is a petition. You are asking God to do something. You are saying, Father in heaven, do whatever you have to do to see to it that your name gets hallowed. Specifically, Father, see to it that your word gets believed. See to it that your displeasure gets 
feared. See to it that your commandments get obeyed. And see to it that, what was the fourth? That your character be glorified. So when you pray the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Realize that you are asking the Almighty to do something for the sake of his name. Namely, that it be trusted, revered, obeyed, and glorified. Now, the final question we have to ask is, for whom are we praying? On whom should he act to bring that about? The the way I went about answering that question was simply to look at the next two phrases in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because in those two phrases, if you just focus on one in turn, each of them has a personal dimension and a global dimension. Let me try to show you what I mean. Take the phrase, thy kingdom come. This is a prayer. This This is like the early church saying, Lord, come. But it has a personal dimension. I think it does because of Matthew 6.33. As you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, you come to Matthew 6.33, where Jesus taught the disciples, seek the kingdom first, and all these other things will be added to you. So don't be anxious about what you shall eat or drink. Now, what does he mean when he says, seek the kingdom first? I think that means, seek to have God reign in your life. Seek God is your ruler. Seek to submit yourself under His provision and His protection and His guidance so that you don't have to be anxious about what you eat and drink. Recognize He's your king. He owns the whole world. The thousand on a, the, the thousand on a cattle's back. <laughs> the cattle on a thousand hills are His. He can supply every need that you have. So don't be anxious. He's your king. That's the personal dimension. So when you pray, Thy kingdom come, You ought to be praying, rule in my life. Be my king today. Help me to submit to you as my sovereign so that I'm not so anxious about where my next uh, job or meal or friend is coming from. But that's, that's not the only meaning of this request. It does have a global dimension. And those of you who are familiar with Jesus' teachings about the kingdom know that. For example, at the Last Supper... He said to his disciples, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now that's ominous. That's not this personal experience of the present rule of God. That's something coming like a train rolling down the track. It refers to the coming of the Son of Man with angels in flaming fire to gather his elect from the four winds and establish his kingdom on the earth. So when you pray, Thy kingdom come. You're not just saying, Lord, rule right now in my life and be my king. You're saying, wrap it up. Wrap history up. Do whatever you have to do to bring things to a close and come, Lord Jesus. Which is why the early church, I think, used the phrase, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. That was simply saying, thy kingdom come. But we've got to ask this question. Who's going to be in that kingdom when it comes? When he establishes his kingdom here, who's going to be in it? Because you don't know what you're praying for unless you know that. And I get the answer to that question by looking at the glimpse of the kingdom that John had in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. 
where John said, Worthy art thou, Lord Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood did ransom men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and hast made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So who is going to inhabit this kingdom? Ransomed from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. When you pray, Thy kingdom come, you know what you're really praying? So move upon the church, O God, that we reach the unreached tribes, peoples, tongues, and nations, that the ransomed might be gathered in, that the Son might come. It's a missionary prayer, through and through. A personal prayer for our own enablement in it, and a great missionary prayer that God do what He hath to do to bring the kingdom in, which will consist of ransom from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And the same thing appears if you look at the next phrase in the Lord's Prayer, where he says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope that personally what you mean when you pray that is this, Father, I'm so frustrated and fed up with my half-hearted and imperfect obedience to your, your will, would you grant me the power to obey your will the way Gabriel does in heaven? The way Lydia Holmgren today does and Odette McCavaney today who have once and for all left all sinning, all divided heart, all lukewarmness behind, no more struggles with that. What you pray personally when you say, let your will be done in my life the way it's done in heaven is that I want it done flawlessly. I want it done fervently. I don't want any lukewarmness. I don't want any divided heart. Help me obey the way the angels obey. That's what you mean when you pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But, there's a global dimension because when you look at heaven in your mind's eye, how many people are obeying? 50%? 50% of the angels obey all the time? 70, 80, 90? 100% in heaven obey. Therefore, when you pray, Thy will be done on this earth the way it's done in heaven, you're saying, God, do what needs to be done so that there's nothing but obeyers on the earth. Which is another way of saying, Thy kingdom come. Or, God, move upon Bethlehem so that there rise up out of this church people who will penetrate the last hidden peoples and call out the ransomed from every tongue and tribe and nation who will do your will the way it's done in heaven, and then come. It's a great missionary prayer, and I hope from now on, when we pray it at Bethlehem, it will have that ringing urgency in it that perhaps it hasn't had before. Let me close with three brief implications. Number one, 
God's top priority, according to this prayer, is that his name be hallowed and that it be hallowed in all the earth, that it be believed, feared, obeyed, and glorified. And the consummation of all our joy in God at Bethlehem will be the day when God has made us the instruments of completing the Great Commission and seeing his name hallowed in all the earth. Second implication. It's a prayer. Jesus teaches us the priority of God in a prayer. And surely the meaning of that is He intends for us to pray that priority into existence. He means that any great missionary movement to see God's name hallowed in the frontiers, to see the kingdom come and to see His will be done like the angels do it in all the tribes of the earth, surely... He means that that movement is going to happen when we take this prayer seriously. When we understand that hallowed be thy name is the same as the prayer, farm owner, send out laborers into your harvest. Take heed for your name. Take heed for the harvest. Are really one prayer. And they are commandments to the church. This is not an optional prayer. He's saying pray this prayer. Go after God for the hallowing of His name and the sending of His workers. Third and finally, the implication rises for Bethlehem when we consider that the job is not yet done. Now, I'm assuming you know that, but most of us aren't really into reading missionary literature. You you probably don't know the names of 10% of the world's 200 plus countries. We, We just aren't a world people very much and therefore we sort of know that there are a lot of unbelievers in the world that yet need to be reached but the real nitty gritty statistics of peoples and nations that are unreached we're just not much aware of and that's why being with Ralph Winter next Friday night and next Sunday night and at Missions in the Mans is going to be such a crucial time for us you're going to hear Ralph Winter speak about 17,000 people groups who are beyond near neighbor evangelism and can only be reached by cross-cultural missions. But I have a feeling that maybe those numbers are just uh, too distant, too uh, fuzzy. So let me try to, to take another set of numbers that are found in the World Christian Encyclopedia, 1980, edited by David Barrett. David Barrett says there are 432 ethno-linguistic groups in the world. French, Portuguese, big language culture groups, 432 of them. 81 of these, about 19%, have fewer than 0.1% people who have any affiliation with Christianity at all. And those 81 peoples make up 1.7 billion people, over a third of the world's population. Within that 81, there are 43 in his listing that come under the title 0.00% Christianized. And of these 43, in these 43, there are 220 languages, 54 of which only have any portion of Scripture. So, if you just take David Barrett's big conservative figures. The job isn't done. There are tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples who don't have 
a Christian voice in them. And so I conclude with this implication of charge for our church. If we aim to be obedient to the Lord and to pray this prayer, hallowed be thy name in all the earth with any sincerity, we must, number one, hallow him with great intensity in our hearts. We've got to be a new people. His name has to be precious to us like it never has been before. Second, we need to believe and fear and obey and glorify him, which is simply the implication of the first. Third, we need to be willing to go ourselves. Now, God will not call all of you to go. It isn't the New Testament pattern. But there is a difference between going and a deep, consecrated willingness. I think everybody, from the oldest to the youngest, needs to be able to say with all sincerity, whether my job is the most secure in the world, God, if you should blow my mind away and tell me that I'm to be involved in some unexpected way, I'll do it. If you're not willing to say that, you are a disobedient disciple and need to rededicate yourself to the Lord. Fourth, we must simplify our lives to free up time and to free up resources for the final decades of the war effort on unbelief. Fifth, we need to labor to make Bethlehem a boot camp and a base of operations and a recruitment center I believe with all my heart that it is no accident that God has put Bethlehem just a few hundred yards away from a campus with 50,000 students in the same city with Bethel College and Bethel Seminary and has gathered around a staff like he has. It is no historical accident. It is strategic. And therefore my prayer is that old and young will not sense any competition but that there will be a grand unified excitement that in the next decade, the grand mission of Bethlehem Baptist Church will be a boot camp, a base of operations, and a recruitment center. And those who stay are therefore of immense importance in training, encouraging, praying, helping, funding. And all these young people that surrounded us in the Sunday school hour like a cloud of witnesses as they went up to the balcony to make room for everybody else are going to someday be a cloud of witnesses looking back on this church as the place where they took their cue. And finally, we must be so captivated by the love and the majesty of God that there is no joy greater in our life than the joy of counting everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus and making him known. And now may the inexhaustible name of our great God be hallowed in our own hearts and around the world. To him be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.